On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I am David Osman, and with me today is Manoj Pradhan of Talking Heads Macro. Our title for this podcast, The Revival of Inflation, What's Next? The Independent Research Forum promotes a broad range of top quality independent research providers from around the world, both macro and micro. Many are global, some are country specific, some sector specific, some stock specific, and all are investment related. In 2009, Manoj Pradham and Charles Goodhart co-authored a fascinating and very influential book entitled The Great Demographic Reversal, Aging Societies, Waning Inequality, and an Inflation Revival. With its focus on longer-term trends, this book sets out important signposts to the demographic, economic, and social trends that will be increasingly important in the post-pandemic decades. In their book, they predicted that inflation would take off and that interest rates would increase in response to secular trends such as ageing societies and deglobalization, They argued that this revival of inflation would not be transitory. Their predictions are proving to be alarmingly accurate. The annual rate of UK consumer price inflation has risen from just 1.3% in December 2019 to 9.9% in August 2022. Where do we go from here, both in the shorter term and in the longer term. To answer this question and more, I'm very pleased that we're joined today by Manoj Pradham, Talking Heads Macro. Manoj, along with Charles Goodhart, is a co-founder of Talking Heads Macro, which was set up in 2016. Previously, Manoj and Charles Goodhart worked at Morgan Stanley, where Manoj was the managing director with the responsibility for the global economics team Before that, he worked at George Washington University and the State University of New York. Manaj is widely recognized for his speciality in quantitative macroeconomics, emerging markets, and global economics. Charles Goodhart is a very well-known, being both a highly regarded former member of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee and a professor at the London School of Economics. Manaj, welcome back. Let's begin with a short introduction to the service that is provided by Talking Heads Macro. Thank you very much, David, and thanks to the IRF for having me here. It's a great pleasure to be here again. I enjoyed our last chat. Um, a brief introduction to us. We are, as you say, a global economics um, team, but what we do, which is different, is born out of our experiences working on the sell side. One of the things that we try to do is not just talk about macroeconomic trends, but talk about those trends which seem to be missing from market pricing. And as a result, we are able to make recommendations on a six-month, six to eight uh, to 12-month basis, uh, where markets do not seem to be pricing what really is likely to happen over that time period. I'm not really sure we have very much visibility over the very near term. Economists don't really have much to say about that. But we've had a wonderful run over the last two years, particularly with the pandemic. And our forecast for inflation, as you said in the book that we wrote just before the pandemic, the publishers were very kind to allow us to have a last chapter once the pandemic broke. And we had indeed, as you said, argued that inflation would be somewhere in the 5 to 10% range as the global economy struggled with what would look like a post-war shortage problem. 
two other things that have changed and really helped us in our thinking and our market calls have been that central banks have been forced into action. They have been more aggressive than uh, one could have uh, forecasted at that time, which is great news. But they have not been able to get inflation under control for two reasons. Number one, that the savings from the pandemic have been strong and labor markets have been tight. Both are things that we had discussed in our book. Our broader successes have generally come in not only looking at which economies would be doing worse off in terms of inflation, where central banks would be forced to follow rates, but to also know when to pull the plug on rising break-evens to select countries and when to stop looking at equity markets. They've all been part and parcel of the reason that we've done so well. One can only hope that we continue in that fashion, but it's been a very, very, very good ride over the last two years. If we focus on the various drivers of inflation, both in the near term and in the longer run, how are these drivers changing? I think that is the real question here. Um, There's no doubt that we've got an inflation problem on our hands. I think it's what happens next, as the title suggests, is, is the key part. And the debate has now moved on to when inflation will peak to how quickly it will come down and what level it will settle at. In other words, it's not where we will peak at inflation, but what inflation persistence will likely be that matters. And to understand that, I think we have to think that there are three inflation cycles playing out today. It's not just one. That seems to be the general consensus, but there really are three inflation cycles playing out. The first one is the one that is discussed the most the one that is related to supply shortages, to delivery times, to commodity prices, um, and so on and so forth. And and that will undoubtedly come down, even though it will happen at a pace that is much slower than most are predicting. In its last um, minutes, the Federal Open Market Committee actually argued that the supply side effects it was looking to uh, were fading far slower than it expected. Now, that's a statement that's reasonable in 2020. But to make that statement in 2022 shows just how aggressive the central bank was depending on very benign declines in inflation. I think we should leave that out of the picture. The second cycle, I think, is the absolutely critical one here, and it's being missed by most market participants. And I'll give you an example of how and why. And that is the Phillips curve and what is happening with prices as they spread through the economy. Uh, various measures of inflation, core inflation trend mean, they'll tell you that inflation has spread. We can see wages growing across the economy a lot faster. But I think what's missing here is to understand that the gap between where output is and where potential output is has grown in a level, primarily because there has not been enough capex. So potential output has not grown. Actual output has grown by leaps and bounds relative to potential. And so The thing that creates a negative output gap will be a shock to demand that is quite severe. It's only then we can get inflation. And the second part I think that people have to realize is it's not just uh, labor shortages that are a problem. What happens is, let's say the hospitality sector has a shortage of labor and it says, look, business is booming. I'm going to offer some really spectacular incentives because I need these people right now. And it attracts people from some other sector. Well, whichever sector labor has left from then has to compete with the hospitality sector in order to keep the existing labor. And so the wage pressures have spread throughout the economy. 
So even if you reverse the initial impulse that started it all, which might be commodity prices, food prices, getting inflation out of all the other sectors is a profoundly different problem than the one you started with. I think the mistake that central banks are making and market participants for that matter is they still keep conflating the two. And the last bit is the demography story. And you know, to explain that, I always try to think about uh, you know, the classic Sylvester Stallone movie, Rocky, where he runs initially with these massive ankle weights uh, uh, around him. And then once he releases those ankle weights and starts running, he's a free bird and he really smashes everything and blah, blah, blah. I think inflation's a bit like that. Over the last 30 or 35 years, demography has kept a anchor on inflation so that it could never really rise too much. And even if it did, it fell back down very quickly. What we are seeing today is that just that anchor has been cut off. And that doesn't mean inflation will soar forever at 8 and 10%, but it means that inflation is a much freer hand. People who look at demography think it's a problem 20 years into the future. What they can't see is that at this inflection point, even a removal of the pressures that um, demography had placed on inflation to the downside, that removal of pressure really changes the inflation dynamic a lot. Is deglobalization a key element within the labor shortage story as a result of what's happening in China and elsewhere? David, it's a, it's a very good question, and I think it always has been. For example, when we start our chapter in our book on China, uh, we started with a question that we really don't know the answer to. It's not that we're trying to be uh, provocative or trying to use a literary ruse, and the question is, did China lead to globalization or did globalization lead to China? They've both gone hand in hand. And that's a very similar situation to where we are today, where a lot of the labor shortages in, in various countries, particularly the advanced economies, are coincident with a lack of international workers. And that supply of international workers simply hasn't come back to normal. But what's interesting beyond that is that even though places like Australia and the United States both see a lack of international workers uh, in their workforce right now, the participation rates at home have behaved very differently. In the United States and the UK, participation rates have been lower than the pandemic. In places like Australia, the participation rates have risen significantly above their pre-pandemic level. So there are puzzles even within uh, the advanced economies which face similar dynamics as far as migration uh, and immigration trends are concerned. But the overall effect, as you said, has been that lower immigration, lower supplies of foreign workers has indeed made the labor shortages a lot worse. And the war in Ukraine and its impact on energy prices, is this something which is going to endure in terms of the supply shortages in, in the energy markets? To what extent is that influencing your thinking? It does influence uh, our thinking in, in two ways. One, as a global surge that reinforces your previous question, there is an increasing sign that global cooperation um, and the trends of deglobalization are getting further entrenched with these economic and political blocks being more solidly formed. Um, and that simply leads to, uh, you know, a, a, a smaller helping hand. For example, Europe, as it is clear, can no longer depend on cheap energy uh, from Russia. And as it sources new energy or tries to generate green energy at home, the effect is going to be slower growth and a higher rate of inflation. There's absolutely no doubt about that. 
But broadly speaking, uh, I think we, we, we are always mindful that inflation was there before this unforeseeable event um, that uh, was the Russia war. Inflation was present in 2020 when we did not see deflation. It was present certainly in 2021 and central banks uh, encouraged that by staying behind the curve for so long. So I think what we see in the future is not only more lingering effects of uh, the Russia invasion and its long-term impact on regions, particularly the, the, the European region, but also the fact that its confluence with a demand shock that remains sustained um, and has actually been energized by fiscal expansion in the US, in the UK, the euro area, and in China. I think the confluence of the two will mean that inflation is a very, very, very difficult animal to tame. Is the strength of the dollar exporting inflation to other currencies which have weakened against the dollar, uh, partly as a result of the dollar's safe haven status and partly as a result of the tightening by the Federal Reserve? It's actually interesting the way you put it, David, because normally speaking, the way one would think about dollar strength is are we importing deflation from other places? Normally speaking, what happens is when the dollar is strong, it's usually strong at a time when the rest of the world is in serious trouble. And that serious trouble for the last 30 years has coincided with falling inflation. So the dollar strengthens, the rest of the world is in trouble. What the US imports is actually falling inflation. So bond yields and inflation at home get lower. But now what we're seeing is exactly the way you're putting it, is it's not clear what the dollar is doing. It's certainly not importing disinflation from abroad, what is more likely is that it is exporting the monetary stance of the United States. Uh, a lot of people attribute the stronger dollar to higher real rates. I don't think it's quite as simple as that. I think the dollar is stronger because the United States economy is best positioned yet again to absorb those interest rate hikes, which means the interest rates that are rising in the United States, both in the long end and through the Federal Reserve, are absorbed and endogenized by the U.S. economy. But the rest of the world, as it slows down and either goes through stagflationary stocks like Europe or an outright monetary tightening like Latin America, is a far worse place to absorb those shocks and they become exogenous. That's why the dollar is stronger, which probably means exactly as you're saying, that rather than importing disinflation from the rest of the world, a stronger dollar is probably exporting the inflationary stance of the US economy and therefore its monetary policy. So if we think about these three inflation cycles that are playing out, supply shortages, labor shortages, demographics, what are the implications of this for economic policy in order to tackle these different sources of inflation? Well, the first one would be to not be adamant to bring inflation down to targets. Um, I think you can say that publicly speaking as long as you don't act along those lines. If you stop saying it, then you create an even bigger inflationary impulse. But I think central bankers in their minds, and I think they probably are, should be ready to think about 3% as the new 2%. Uh, or 3.5% as the new 2.5%. They need to be able to give inflation a wider berth to settle in the economy, keeping in mind that this is all, not all bad news. The amount of leverage in our systems today requires a higher level of inflation. The second thing that policymakers need to understand is that 
this is not something that they can control over longer periods of time. Uh, in short bursts, yes, whenever inflation rises above a tolerable amount and becomes more variable, central bankers have no option but to respond. But if we are right, and we are right in our arguments in our book, Charles and I have argued that a lot of the disinflation over the last 30 or 35 years actually should be shared by central banks and demography. Yes, central banks had very strong action that they took and very decisive action um, and a very clear path towards monetary policy, but they were given a massive helping hand by demography. That helping hand will now go against them. And the final point I would make is that governments need to start rethinking their fiscal stance very carefully. The UK government is unfortunately finding that out in, in, in the most difficult of, of manner. But what we are looking for is a further increase in all fiscal deficits and a massive increase in government debt over the next 20 years. If you want to take a look, just look at the US congressional budget long-term projections. They project that the United States fiscal balance and the United States debt are going to increase in a straight line over the next 30 years. How do we deal with that? Well, number one, we deal with that by making sure that some semblance of balance is placed. And number two, we deal with it by understanding that central bank balance sheets are not going to contract in the future. They're going to become three to four times the size that they are right now. That short termism, I think, is the problem in monetary policy right now. And they would be very well placed along with governments to start thinking on a 30 year horizon and then boiling it down to what they need to be doing today. That's sorely missing from the policy radar at the moment. Given what you were saying about 3% inflation being the new 2%, is there a case for changing the Bank of England's mandate? And should that mandate be changed not only in terms of the inflation that they target, but also whether maybe they should have a dual mandate like the Federal Reserve, where they have one eye on inflation and the other eye on growth, particularly given that we have a government that's pursuing a fiscal policy aiming for 2.5% growth as the core objective of their economic policy. Well, you see, the problem lies between all three aspects that you mentioned here. You know, there's there's one implicit one, uh, which is keeping employment high, which is the mandate of the Federal Reserve. The second one is inflation, which is explicit for some countries and implicit for others. Uh, the U.S., for example, calls it stable prices. Um, and the third one is growth. And I think there is a tension among all three of them in the following manner. First of all, let's let's answer each question. The inflation target, should it be changed? Yes, but probably that will not be a sensible strategy for quite a while. If they do it at this point in time, it will look like the central bank is abandoning its inflation setting target, and that could really set the cat among the pigeons. So there will be a time where it becomes realistic and obvious that uh, the the 2% target is no longer viable. And I think it will undergo a change, but probably this is not the time to do it. Number two, uh, unemployment. So keeping employment stable is going to be rather more easy than keeping inflation under control. So thinking of a lower natural rate uh, uh, or a higher natural rate should really be thought about along with the changing demography in the region. If you're allowing more immigration, then clearly we can think of the labor market as a little bit bigger and a little bit more flexible. If there is no immigration, uh, all the trends 
really do not support having uh, a serious labor market oriented policies, then I think we will need to think about the natural rate in a different manner. And finally, when it comes to growth, I mean, just the basic economics would tell you that growth is a function of productivity and the growth rate of the labor supply, which feeds into my earlier point. If your labor supply isn't going to grow quite as quickly, then the labor market can remain tight, but growth will not really be very strong. So targeting 2.5% growth really seems to be an anachronism where you're thinking about a pre-pandemic, pre-global financial crisis, pre-demography inflection rate of growth, and it's simply not on offer. The more you try to chase that, the greater is the inflationary impulse you're going to create, the more difficult it will be for the output gap to turn negative or even become stable. And you're just setting yourself up for a fall. So these three points uh, on the macroeconomic radar, the unemployment rate, inflation and growth, will have to be dealt with very, very, very differently. I remember, I think when he was chancellor, Roy Jenkins said, any fall can control inflation if they create a recession. How do you see the growth story and the risk of recession unfolding in the next one to two years? Well, at this point in time, I think central banks are slowly transitioning from a very benign story that they had before, which was that, well, we will take the beverage curve, which is you know the, the ratio of openings to unemployment, uh, lower by reducing the number of openings in the economy and still keeping the unemployment rate fairly steady. And now that story has changed a little bit to one that says, well, there is going to be pain in the economy in the United States. In the euro area in Europe, it's fairly clear that the effects of the, the Russian invasion are only going to exacerbate a problem that the UK has actually seen since November. And so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult proposition in these two different regions about what a recession will really do. For example, in the United States, I think the phrase that you used is very right, that you do need to generate a recession. And in my view, a proper hard landing that softens the labor market at the lower end of the labor market by skills. But in the European sphere and in the UK, you're already pretty close to a recession um, and you will slip into one in, in, in the later part of this year, which means just a recession is unlikely to be a solution to inflation because it's coming about as a result of a stagflationary shock. The US produces and exports energy. The European region imports energy and has been subject to significant changes in those prices. So beyond that, I think, is going to be the more difficult proposition. In the US, you're absolutely right. In Europe, I think you will need more sustained policies that try to drag out inflation if they're really serious about getting to their inflation targets. When you think about the impact of all this on the financial markets, both in advanced economies and in the emerging markets, what do you see as the key trends and opportunities? The two key trends to look out for, number one, are just the disaggregation. One of them is the disaggregation in regional or national cycles. For example, I do think the biggest opportunity in the next six months for equities is in China. Yes, they've been hammered by a lot of policies uh, that have gone wrong, particularly the three red lines. That's the right policy, but introduced at the wrong time and now is being offset by a large number of 
other policies going the other way, which are trying to support growth. And whenever COVID inflicts, I, I, inflicts, I have absolutely no view on that. You're going to see a huge surge in the Chinese economy. That's an opportunity that's not available on a fundamental basis anywhere else. There are other economies that have done a spectacular job of hiking interest rates, primarily Brazil and Mexico. And despite the elections in Brazil, I think that's an absolutely fantastic opportunity. And it's probably going to be the best performing market over 2023, along with Mexico. On the other end, we've got economies that are still well behind the curve. We'll see what uh, transpires in the UK and in Europe. But in Australia, for example, monetary aggregates, credit growth and wages are still growing as if nothing has changed. And the RBA has become more dovish. That kind of a story has almost always led to higher interest rates. And those opportunities are even available in some parts of C3, for example, Poland is showing a certain amount of complacency that is just uncomfortable for me. And the wait and watch approach that is coming out of the Czech National Bank isn't fantastic reading either. Ironically, the Hungarian National Bank has done a lot better given how complacent it used to be around the time of the great financial crisis. So breadth ways, we've got a lot of opportunities. In terms of the duration of the cycle as it matures, I have a view that I've had since uh, uh, May or even earlier, actually, trying to remember, that we're rolling from one recession into the other. So the Brazilian economy and a lot of economies in in Latin America and in emerging markets already feel like they're going through a recession. China's had a COVID shock, which really is a very different animal. But even then, it feels like it's already gone through a, a horrendous period of growth, and it has. Europe is slipping into one now. And the last economy to go into a recession will be the U.S., So we've got these rolling recessions that are creating an overall sense of a global recession. And those trends need to be followed, not only in terms of the individual movements, but as a global business cycle dynamic as a whole. And if you look at those two opportunities in isolation and collectively, I think the opportunities for when to buy equities, where to buy equities, where you should be receiving, where you should be paying, and when the dollar is going to turn against which currencies, they're all absolutely incredible opportunities that are probably really worth paying careful attention to. Manoj, many thanks for this most interesting insight into the service that is provided by Talking Heads Macro. With more time, it would be interesting to discuss in greater detail some of the other aspects of your influential book, The Great Demographic Reversal, particularly your thoughts on the longer-run outlook for the global debt situation and the potential impact of this on the financial markets. It would also be interesting to hear more about your thoughts on the shorter-term trading opportunities in these volatile markets. The Independent Research Forum is offering a brief trial to the Talking Heads macro service and can provide details of how to subscribe to their full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Manoj Pradham of Talking Heads Macro.